little bit of a review. This is not a dating class. This is a godhood class. Um, there is one additional requirement to, in addition to being celestial, there's only one additional requirement to being exalted. The difference between celestial people and exalted people is one commandment, and it's marriage, family. And it's not so much a check the list as it's you have, been, you have begun the skill set. We don't wake up one day and all of a sudden know how to be God's. When did our Heavenly Father start to learn how to be a good father? Here on his earth, when he was doing what we're doing. So if you want to mess with someone's godhood, what do you mess with? Their marriage. Not their money. You mess with their marriage. You don't mess with their hairstyle. You mess with their marriage. If you want to mess with their marriage, if you want to mess with their godhood, you'll mess with their marriage. And the best way to mess with their marriage isn't wait till they've been married for 32 years, like Jen and I, and then start at nitpicking. You want to really mess with someone's marriage, where do you target? Where are they most vulnerable? Either beginning of the marriage or even before they've made the choices. I believe you have an enemy to your soul who has laid out pitfalls that you fall into in finding an eternal companion. This class is about identifying those pitfalls. And don't hit yourself if you've fallen into every single one of them. Most of us have. Pitfall number one. Now, just as an introduction, I introduced kind of the pyramid of relationships. Number one are people I know, my acquaintances. We're acquainted. Two, we've developed a friendship. They're my friends. This is the new concept, friendship dating. Scientific experts who study marriage scientifically have identified the best thing that keeps couples together isn't communication, it's friendship. What keeps couples together is friendship. But the irony is in our culture, we don't start with friendship, do we? We jump right into relationships, which makes dating awkward and uncomfortable. So what if we created a new mentality of friendship dating, where the purpose was to build friendships? Whether we're marriage material or not, I still wanna build a friendship. And so we friendship date. It's comfortable, it's casual, and it takes all the awkwardness out. That was pitfall number one, is skipping friendship dating. Pitfall number two then is to misunderstand the purpose of relationship dating. We're not pretending to be married. So many people just jump into a relationship and just pretend to be married rather than embracing the opportunity that this relationship will allow us to test, are we a match? Are we a match? That's what relationship dating should reveal is, are we a match? So pitfall number two was not fully understanding and taking advantage of the purpose of relationship dating. Pitfall number three, though, is quite often when we jump into here and we should be experimenting, are we a match? Where does our heart go? Our heart goes to here. And if you're in a relationship and your heart has gone to here and then you find that you're not a match and there's a deal breaker, what happens to your heart? 
You are devastated. And so much so, the pain of that, I know personally has kept people from trying it again. And so the pitfall is, how do we maintain our hearts here in the experiment of are we a match and not allow our heart to go to here? That was pitfall number three. Pitfall number four is what I call inappropriate dating. Inappropriate dating is when you're on a date with a one and you're acting like you're fours. And I know you've all done that, right? You're on a date with someone you barely know, and it's kind of a relationship date environment, and it's very uncomfortable. And so we asked the question, let's go over the last two weeks. We said, what should be dating? What does dating look like? And I know this is not a dating concept, but if you are limited in your threes and fours and fives, it's probably because you're limited in your ones and your twos. And one of the biggest pitfalls I watch you guys fall into is not increasing your acquaintances. Go where they might be. Go be acquainted with people. And then the other thing I see happening quite often is we come into an institute class, don't say anything to anyone, and then leave the institute class. Instead of taking the opportunity to turn an acquaintance into a friend. You should never miss an opportunity to make a friend. You see someone you don't know? How hard is it? I'm Bryce. Who are you? Where are you from? And before you know it, I've built a friendship. And the next week when I see them, hey, you're John. We talked last week. How'd your week go? And what are we building? A friendship. By increasing your ones and your twos, you increase the chance to have threes, fours, and fives, and sixes. Now, we talked about friendship dating. That's been a subject. What does friendship dating look like? Friendship dating is the moment you are seeing them and not the relationship or are we a match? I love that Lamona, that, that Ammon came into Lamoni's kingdom and said, I desire to dwell among this people, perhaps even till the day I die. Whether you join my church or not, I want to build a friendship. Friendship dating is whether we're a match or not, and that's a subject for another day. I'd like to get to know you. And I'd like to see who you are. That's friendship dating. Then last week's class, if you listened or watched, was to take a look at four, five, and six. The purpose of four is to see if we're a match. And so I hate to be inappropriate, but far too many fours do the same thing over and over and over again. I watch you guys date when you're in a relationship and it's the same thing over again. Rather than saying, let's take advantage of tonight's date to make sure we're compatible. So plan dates that, that confirm that there are no deal breakers. If you have identified a deal breaker, plan a date. That's what dating should look like. 
is that we are seeing ourselves in multiple opportunities to see we're a good match. Children are often a deal breaker. Big deal breaker, right? Raise your hand if you know a couple who broke up over children and parenting issues. I had one, there was one where we weren't in a relationship, but that ended up being a deal breaker. Okay, children, children are deal breakers. I almost half of you raised, uh, children are deal breakers. So can you imagine the tragedy of getting engaged and you've never even been around children as a couple? If children are a deal breaker, what would be a marvelous date? Babysit. Take your niece and your nephew to the zoo. <laughs> and now, did you see? You can buy one ticket and go to the zoo and Thanksgiving Point. Take your niece and nephew. Take Mike. No, don't take Mike. <laughs> I'd love to take this, this is how you get all your babies. There you go. <laughs> but plan the dates. If the church, if spirituality is a deal breaker, you should have spiritual dates. If Working hard. I need to be in a relationship with someone who doesn't give up when it gets hard. Especially since I wanted to be a teacher. I need to be in a relationship with someone who doesn't give up when it gets hard. So one of our dates should very much have been what? Something hard. We built a fence on a date. That's cool. And it was phenomenal. And it was extraneous. And guess what? I didn't quit. She didn't quit. And we had a great time and we laughed. And she learned something about me and I learned something about her. And you know what? In that area, we're a match. And we planned it. We planned a date. Appropriate dating. Appropriate dating when you're five. Any thoughts on if you watch the video or listen? What's the appropriate dating when you're engaged? In Engaged dating is some of the most awkward dating you'll ever find because you're so close to being sixes. You're so close, but the light's still red, folks. It's just across the street. I can see it. And so the awkwardness is, no, 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 don't pretend to be married. Don't pretend to be married. But prepare for the merge. So who cooks? Do you know what you definitely should do? If not at four, at least at five, he should cook for her and she should cook for him. And then they should decide who's gonna cook. <laughs> what a marvelous date, right? Tonight I cook for you. And the next date you cook for me. And then let's talk. And then how about the third date we cook together? And what we're doing is we're having an enjoyable date. We're building a friendship and we're preparing for a merge. My, uh, my parents, um, the opposite gender parent for both of them is the one who took care of paying all the bills in their household. And they found that out by getting married and then missing a bunch of bills and going straight to collect. Yeah. Purely because they were totally thinking Wait a minute. That's your job. No, no, that. And they never planned it. So how about on a date, pay some bills? And watch how each other handles bill paying. Do you see the purpose of preparing for the merge? Now, when you're married, promise me today, commit to your heavenly father today that for the rest of your life, you will date. 
that when you are married, and especially when you have little kids and it's hard, especially when it's hard, you will date. And the one thing I would say, do you remember when Jesus is at Mary and Martha's house and Martha is so concerned about the meal. She's so concerned about preparing the meal. Do you, are you concerned that Jesus, Mary's just sitting there listening to you teach and not worried about the meal? And Jesus double names her, Martha, 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 Martha. And I don't believe he's saying learning is more important than eating. Because if you're starving, guess what's more important? Eating's more important than learning. What he said to her was, one thing is needful. And right now, she's chosen it. And you haven't. Now, what about another day? What might be the needful thing another day? Mary, let's go help Martha in the kitchen. That's what's needful. So may I suggest that when you're married, you ask the question, what's needful? And maybe the most needful thing is to get her out of the house. That's what's needful. Maybe what's needful is to rebuild and rekindle a friendship that seems to be dwindling. Maybe what's needful Whatever, a thousand things. That's what dating when you're married should look like, is what's needful. So that was pitfall four, inappropriate dating. If you're on a date with a one, date a one. And the whole purpose of the date should be what? Build a friendship. That's it. Don't, don't create any other expectation. If you do, they're going to feel awkward. So inappropriate dating. Pitfall number four. Now, those are the first four pitfalls, and they all have to do with going up and down on this scale. Skipping, knowing what the purpose is, letting your heart go here, appropriately dating at every level. Now, for the next, so we've got 10 pitfalls, and that's four. For the next six pitfalls, we are going to focus here, and we're going to ask the question, are you a match? Six pitfalls. Are you a match? And so today, let me introduce pitfall number five. You must know the difference between being in love and love. Being in love is I am in love. And it's very emotional and it's very thrilling. But that is not love. If you believe love is an emotion, you have a problem. Because what will emotion, all emotions will change and fade. And if you have convinced yourself that love is, I feel this incredible emotion. I'm so physically attracted to her. When I look at her, I just melt inside. Being with her is the thrill of a lifetime because I can't believe how gorgeous she is. And she's talking to me and holding my hand and being with her is emotional. And you instantly begin to say, well, because I'm in love with her, we're a match. 
Now tell me what's going to happen. I guarantee what's going to happen. The thrill is going to fade. Now the very best thing I have ever found in all of my life to explain this came from C.S. Lewis. And I just, I just can't do, but I just want to read it. That's all I'm going to do is read C.S. Lewis and allow you to ponder what he's saying. So let me read C.S. Lewis. Uh, not that one. Can I make a comment while you're holding Please. Um, just to clarify the point that a lot of times emotions and feelings do fade, but they also come back too, but then they fade again. I think sometimes people misunderstand like yep. they fade and they just never come back, which is not true either. And that's what we're going to, and that's what we're going to talk. It's the pursuit of the thrill that is the problem. Okay. This is C.S. Lewis. I know it's just one big run on paragraph. It's just easier for me to store it that way. So let's just read it together. Ready? C.S. Lewis says, being in love is a good thing, isn't it? Oh, it's such a great thing. Being in love is such a good thing, but it is not the best thing. It is a drug like no other. And I have watched what it does to you. I've watched what it does to your grades. <laughs> I've watched what it does to everything else. It is a, a thrill beyond thrills. But it is not the best thing. There are many things below it and there are things above it. You cannot make it the basis of a whole life. It is a noble feeling, but it is still a feeling. Now, no feeling can be relied on to last in its full intensity or even to last at all. Knowledge can last. Principles can last. Habits can last. But feelings come and go. And in fact, whatever people say, the state called being in love usually does not last. Now, I love this insight from him. I just love this in insight. If the old fairy tale ending, quote, they lived happily ever after is taken to mean they felt for the next 50 years exactly as they felt the day that before they were married, then it says what probably never was nor ever could be true and would be highly undesirable if it were. Who could bear to live in that excitement for even five years? What would become of your work, your appetite, your sleep, your friendships, your grades, your degree? But of course, ceasing to be in love need not mean ceasing to love. Love in this second sense, love as distinct from being in love is not merely a feeling. And I'm so grateful he worded it that way. Love is a feeling. Does God have feelings for me? Of course he does. But love is not merely a feeling. So what is love? This is one of the best definitions I've ever found. It is a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit reinforced by the grace which both ask and receive from God. In other words, how do you word that? Love is a choice. I 
choose. I exercise my agency to be with you. That's probably one of the most romantic things I've ever heard. <laughs> Isn't that sweet? My, I just swept her off my feet, her feet with that. I choose her, but the reality is one of the most romantic things is I choose her every morning and I choose her every night. I choose her when it rains. I choose her when it's, sun, it's sunny. I choose her when we're poor. I choose her when we're rich. I choose her when she's mad at me because I've made a mistake. I choose her when she's imperfect. I choose her every morning. I will myself to be with her. If we grow apart, if people fall out of love, it's because why? They chose to. They stopped choosing. But don't give me any of this garbage that we're no longer in love. Love is a choice. Love is a will and a determination. So the question I ask is, do you love each other? It's thrilling that you're in love with each other. But when all of that fades, do you choose each other? Do you choose? Do you will yourself to be together? I choose to be with her. That's love. And that's what makes marriage successful. Notice what he says. They can have this love for each other even at those moments where they do not like each other. If a couple's relationship is based on the feeling and the being in love, then they have a fight, what do they do? They break up. But I can choose to be with her even in the moments I don't like her. That doesn't apply to my wife, I always like her. But when human beings come together, don't they bump into each other and they're gonna have some awkward moments? I still choose her even when the feeling isn't that positive. In fact, he says, they could retain this love even when each would easily, if they allowed themselves, be in love with someone else. Let me give you an example. Do you think I ever give Heavenly Father frustrating feelings? Do you think ever, Heavenly Father is ever angry at me or frustrated? Do you ever looks down and says, oh my gosh, Bryce. Oh my gosh, are we really doing this again? Do I frustrate him? Does that mean he stops loving me in that moment? Could I actually make him furious at me? And does he stop loving me? There's love. God loves me even when those moments he's not happy with me. He still chooses to be in my life and to be connected to me. He willfully chooses me even in those moments where he's not happy with me. Do you see what love is versus the feeling? Being in love is usually what promises us fidelity. We usually start by falling in love. My wife walked into the room and I lost my breath. She took my breath away. I was so head over heels madly in love with her. 
That's what started it. But I was determined not to marry her until I knew she chose me and I chose her. Being in love is what first moved them to promise fidelity. This quieter love enables them to keep this promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it. Now, I love this analogy. Ready? People get from books the idea that if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. As a result, when they find they are not, they think it proves that they have made a mistake and they're entitled to a change. Now, how many marriages are breaking up for that very reason? How many couples are breaking up because they thought that this bliss would last forever and all of a sudden it's come to an end and they don't have anything else and so they break up. So what happens? They go over here looking for bliss over here, not realizing what? And so, um, as a result, when they find they are not, they, they, they think this proves that they've made a mistake and are entitled to a change, not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old. In this department of life, as in every other, thrills come at the beginning and do not last. The thrill you feel on first seeing a delightful place dies away when you really go live there. Does it mean it'd be better not to live in the beautiful place? By no means. If you go, now this is Levi's point. If you go through with it, the, the dying away of the first thrill will be compensated for by a quieter and more lasting kind of happiness. What is more, the very people who are ready to submit to the loss of the thrill and settle down to the longer lasting happiness are then most likely to meet new thrills in some quite different direction. It becomes thrilling in different ways. This is, I think, one little part of what Christ meant when he said that a thing will not really live unless it dies first. It is simply no good trying to keep any thrill. That is the very worst thing you can do. Let it go. Let it die. Go on through this period of death into a quieter happiness that follows. And you will find you are living in a world of new thrills all the time. Forgive my spelling. But if you decide to make thrills your regular diet, tell me what's going to happen. The hunt for the thrill. What's going to happen? And you try to prolong them artificially, they will all get weaker and weaker and fewer and fewer, and you will become a bored, disillusioned old man for the rest of your life. Yeah. If it were thrilling every day, it's never going to be thrilling, right? It's because so few people understand this that you find many middle-aged men and women maundering about their lost youth at the very age when new horizons ought to be appearing and new doors opening all around them. It is much better fun to learn to swim than to go on endlessly and hopelessly trying to get back that thrill you had when you first went paddling as a small boy. I love that as a general life principle, not even just for data. Yep. Let me give you just a handful of examples, okay? When my oldest daughter, she's now 31, but when she was about 13 and was babysitting, and babysitting money is hard to come by. You don't get a lot. When she was about 13, she fell in love with a pair of non-prescription glasses. 
She loved the idea of putting glasses on. She thought she looked so sophisticated when she put on some glasses. And she fell in love with a pair of non-prescription glasses. Now tell me what happened. How long do you think it lasted? She paid $25. 13-year-old paid $25 for a pair of non-prescription glasses. Tell me what happened. How long? A week and a half. A week and a half and she never wore them again. Why? Tell me why. Because the thrill of wearing them died off. Now, those of you who wear glasses every day aren't thrilled by them. You have a relationship with your glasses, right? I'm committed to my glasses. I don't like them, but I love them. And I choose to put them on. Do you see the difference? How about musical instruments? How many of you fell in love with a musical instrument and no longer play it? How long did it last? How long did it last? About three years. Three years. Because musical instruments are what? Hard. <laughs> and after a while, the thrill will not motivate you. If you have not learned to love your instrument, you will not put up with the doldrum of practicing day after day. And how many people, how many children fell in love with an instrument and then when it was no longer a thrill, they stopped? Now, one more example. Have you all noticed the difference between people who are in love with Jesus and love Jesus? What's the difference? If you have never known about Christ and a Savior and you come to know about Christ and a Savior, it is thrilling. I love that. I love being part of that, helping people fall in love with Jesus. But tell me what you know about it. It's going to become hard. And if you're simply in love with Jesus, what happens when the hard part comes? If you went on a mission because you're thrilled with the idea of going on a mission. I just, sometimes when these missionaries stand and give their homecoming, their farewell address, I just think, do you really know what you signed up for? But it's so thrilling, right? It's so thrilling. You open the mission call and everyone's there and you're so excited and I'm going to Texas and I, I buy the flag and I wrap myself in the flag. And, and, and then guess what happens when you get to Texas? It's hot and people don't like you and they reject you and you got bugs the size of Texas all over your apartment. And all of a sudden it's hard. Now tell me about all the people who fell in love with a mission but never loved their mission. What happens? A lot of them leave. Or if they don't leave, they're miserable. Now tell me, what was that magical moment where the thrill of going on a mission died away and the love of the mission kicked in? Can I tell you mine? I went to Mexico City. 
I was, I figured, hey, Mexico, that's close enough, right? Culture, I'll be fine. I was hit, culture shock slapped me in the face. Um, my apartment, now missionary, Mexico has some wonderful places to live. I don't want to demean in any way. I just want to talk to you about the reality of where missionaries live in Mexico. <laughs> my first apartment, <laughs> I would never let any of my children live in it. The bathroom, you'd sit on the, t- the shower was above the toilet. So you, you would straddle the toilet when you took your shower. So make sure you do your business before the shower because it's going to be very wet afterwards. And sitting on the toilet, there was just grime everywhere. And I was told in the MTC, buy a pair of flip-flops. And I didn't understand why in the MTC. But walking into my first apartment, I said, oh, that's why. <laughs> and... I remember being there and I, I just, I, I took Spanish in high school and I thought I mastered the language until I got to Mexico. I remember in the airport, we went from Utah to LA and there was this five-year-old little girl in the airport and I thought, I walked over to this little girl and she just, and I was like, oh my, I'm, I'm, I can't even talk to a five-year-old little girl. Yeah, when they're laughing, the five-year-old little girl's laughing at me. And one day, it was just hard. Mexico City in the smog, and there's 26 million people there. And um, we went to dinner, and oh my goodness, I knew they ate spicy food, but I, had, I was not prepared for the meal I ate. Um, and just one day, it just, it, it just hit me. When it was overcast, Mexico gets two rainy seasons. They get it when the rain goes up, and they get it when the rain goes down. And we were in the middle of the rainy season, and it was P-Day, and my companion said, do you want to wash? And I thought, MTC, throw my clothes, write letters. Yes, I want to wash. So he walks me up to the upstairs, to the top, handed me a brick of soap, and says, you go first. And there was a stone basin. A stone basin with a spigot and a brick. And he went downstairs and it was raining and I wept. That was the moment I did not love my mission anymore. I was not in love with my mission anymore. But I made it through the day, and that afternoon when we did go out, we met, he took me to see this woman who had been the internal investigator that she you know, never got baptized, but she loved the missionaries, and she fed us pozole, and oh my gosh, it was the best thing I ever tasted. It was so good. And then afterwards, my companion said, you, you know, can we talk? And he turned to me and he said, is there anything you want to say? And I said, yes, I'd love to. And in my broken Spanish, I said, look, I don't know how to speak this language very well. I don't even know why I'm here. But one thing I know, I've come here a long distance because I know this is true and I know it will make you happy. I probably said other things that were maybe not appropriate, but I didn't know. And she was humored. She humored me. But I bore a simple testimony. I know it's true. 
And as soon as I was done, she turned to my companion and she said, I want to get baptized on one condition, that he do it, that he does it. I want him to baptize me. And I was never homesick again. That moment, what happened that moment? I love being here. I love my mission. All the fanfare and all the hoopla was gone. And that was the moment I'm in. I am 100% committed. This is my home. This is my place. This is my country. These are my people. And I'm in. Now take that idea and put it into dating. Do you see what it looks like? Make sure when you're asking the question, are we a match? You understand the difference between the thrill of being in love and the commitment of love. I hope you are in love, but then I hope you date long enough to know that that is not the center of your relationship. That I choose her and she chooses me. Pitfall number five, know the difference between being in love and love. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.